Well, many of us have a lot of different kinds of problems and difficulties, things that concern us. Uh, we can begin close at home. Uh, there will be some of you who have a, a child who's departed from the faith or a close friend who is destroying their lives and you wish that you could put your hand inside their heart and change them, and you can't. We look at what's happening around us in our culture, and it's actually unbelievable. The changes have taken place even in less than a decade. And we see this awful cloud uh, enveloping uh, our own country. We look around the world uh, at the Church of Jesus Christ in so many places uh, being oppressed and crushed. We know people there. Our hearts break for them. And in all these things, we're very frustrated. You know, we are Americans, and we, we like to get our fingers in the middle of things. We, we want to be part of fixing something. And these are things that you and I can't fix. And so our frustration grows. Sometimes, in the midst of that frustration, um, we think or say something like this. I really can't do anything, but I'll pray. Have you said that? Have you thought that? It's absolutely the worst thing in the world to say or think. Not because you thought about praying. It's the, the low premium that you gave to prayer. You see, there's nothing more important than you and I can do with respect to uh, anything that faces us than to pray. The prayer is the foundation of anything that God does. And yet we place it often on, on the lowest. And, and that's also evidence then in our behavior privately and in our behavior as churches. So tonight, in order to encourage you about this great work of prayer, I want to direct your attention to uh, Romans uh, chapter uh, 15, verses 30 to uh, 33. Now, Paul wrote this letter to the Romans to prepare the way for a visit. He knew that they, some of them were a bit upset. You know, he's the apostle of the Gentiles. He's never been to the capital of the Roman Empire. And he, he writes him to explain why that is. But he, he picks back up on that theme here in what I read in, in, in chapter 15 in order once again to explain uh, that he's coming. But there's one more delay uh, before he comes. And that is he has a diaconal offering that he uh, is compelled to take to Jerusalem. It's, it's very important, not simply because there were people in Jerusalem that were hungry. No, it was, it was very important because this was the Gentile churches sending an offering to the mother church. And those who had been helped spiritually wanting now to help those who were in need physically. And it was an offering that was going to express the absolute unity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet it was a trip that was filled with danger. And Paul's well aware of that. He's been uh, told by the Holy Spirit of the chains that await him uh, in Jerusalem. So as he prepares the Romans for the visit, he appeals to them now to pray with him and for him. And that's our text this evening. And from these verses, I want to show you that God is calling us to labor at prayer that we might enter into his work and receive his blessings. God's calling us to labor at prayer that we might enter into his work 
and receive his blessings. I want to develop that theme or proposition under four headings tonight. I want us to uh, think about uh, prayer as a serious work, a solemn duty, an awesome privilege, and a great blessing. Well, first in verse 30, I want to show you that the Holy Spirit is teaching us here that prayer is, in fact, a serious work. Paul says, I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Now, overall, this is a call to prayer. And we would recognize that any call to prayer would include all the aspects of prayer that are given to us in the outline of the Lord's Prayer. But as we read in the context here, we recognize this is particularly a call of what we would refer to as intercessory prayer. Uh, Paul is appealing to them to come alongside of him and pray with him and for him and to join in that intercession on his behalf. And so uh, he's calling them to this particular work of intercessory prayer. But I want you to note as well that he's calling them to do this corporately. Now, every aspect of prayer is important. Our private prayers, our family prayers. But the most neglected part of praying in our day, in our churches in America, is uh, the corporate prayer, the prayer meeting. I'm not talking about corporate prayer and corporate worship. The corporate prayer of prayer meeting. Uh, But you see that that's Paul's primary emphasis here, isn't it? He says, I want you all, it's in the plural, to pray with me and for me. And then notice, as we get to the blessings, we'll come back to this, but they're all corporate. I may come to you with joy, verse 32, be refreshed together with you. Now the God of peace be with you all. Now this is a much neglected work in our day. uh, The prayer meeting in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we see in the New Testament that it was central to any gospel success. What was the very first thing the apostles did after they witnessed the ascension of the Savior? We're told in Acts chapter 1, they went back and uh, with one mind devoted themselves with the rest of the church to prayer in the upper room. What were they doing when God fulfilled that promise for which they were praying of the Holy Spirit? They were in the prayer meeting. They were in that room. To what did they devote themselves Uh, As this great revival begins to sweep through them, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine and, amongst other things, to prayer. What did they do when they were threatened to be quiet? They had a prayer meeting. You see, corporate prayer was very important in the life of the church. It's very unimportant in the life of the church today. And as I'll say in a bit, that's probably one of the factors behind the moribund nature of the church today. I hope that you'll see that. So it's to this work of corporate prayer, but I'm calling it a serious work. And why is that? Well, look at the word that the apostle uses. He says, strive together with me in your prayers to God. This word translated strive comes from a Greek word from which we get an English word agonize. You could translate it agonize with me. 
It was a word that used for, for great effort and for, for military. Paul uses it of his own ministry. I have fought the good fight. That's the word he uses, this word, strive. He tells Timothy uh, to uh, strive. It's used of Epaphras' prayers, though, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, that he has been striving, laboring his prayers for you. Now, obviously, the word strive brings to mind something much more than what sometimes we think of as prayer. This is a, a term that describes agonizing hard work. I remember as a new Christian hearing a speaker say that prayer is one of the hardest things that you would ever do. And of course, being a new Christian, I inside laughed. I just didn't know anything about the Christian life. We know it's hard. And we will make all kinds of excuses. But the work I'm talking about here is much more than merely that we need to devote ourselves to prayer. No, it is laboring in prayer is what Paul talks about doing. Let me just suggest two things that that entails. I'll put them together. Persevering, pleading. Persevering, pleading. But I'm going to reverse them. We must, in our praying, my dear friends, learn to plead with God. And that means to argue. Spurgeon said that we should fill our mouths with arguments. Um, we get a good example of this in the prayers of Moses on behalf of the people. We saw it when Abraham pled for Sodom and Gomorrah. But I'm particularly blessed by Moses' prayer in Exodus 32 after the golden calf incident. And God tells Moses, uh, let me alone that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. I'll make of you a great nation. Now, God's training Moses here as the, as the mediator. Then Moses entreated the Lord as God and said, Oh, Lord, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power, with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains, to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. Change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now we know that God didn't change his mind, but God was training Moses. And this prayer shows us then how we must learn to plead with God. To argue with him. You see that Moses took God's character. He took God's covenant. He took God's promises. God's reputation. And these are the things that he used to plead with God to spare those people. Now that's what I mean by pleading. The Bible's full of such prayers. And may we learn to do them. Uh, but then uh, the matter of persistence. Well our Savior sets that before us in Luke chapter 11. When after... Uh, his disciples have observed him in praying, and he gives them a kind of truncated version of the Lord's Prayer. Um, he then gives them a parable in verse 5. Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. From inside, he answers, and he says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence and the Greek's shamelessness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And then the Savior gives us this glorious commandment and promise. 
Uh, I say to you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He, and this is all in the present tense. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Uh, he who seeks, finds. He who keeps knocking, will be opened. Now suppose one of your fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He'll not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he's asked for an egg, he'll not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What a beautiful picture from the Savior. What a warrant he gives us. We don't let our children do this. But he says, you keep asking until I give you some kind of answer. Don't stop. And what a promise. He'll give us the Holy Spirit, who is the pledge to us of all of God's great blessings and, and benefits. So this striving in prayer can be summarized in these two things. A serious work is persistent pleading with God. And we need God to teach us how to do this. We need to practice it. And we need to keep uh, uh, in, maybe in a prayer journal arguments we use with God, his names, his promises, his, his character, his attributes, and learn to marshal these things to enforce our petitions. So it is indeed a serious work. We also see that prayer here, and Paul develops it, is a solemn duty. So we look back at the beginning of uh, verse 30. I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through love of the Spirit. Now, beg, another word can be translated here, is to exhort and we can tend to look at this as pious advice, and maybe the more mature people in the church will follow this advice. But the verb that Paul uses here is the same verb he uses in uh, chapter 12 when he says, I beseech you, therefore, or I urge you, or I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, is that an optional? No. That's the, that's the call of the gracious gospel of God. Well, that's the call here. This is a gospel commandment addressed to the church. Notice that he addresses them and us as brothers and sisters, as brethren. This is a church-wide responsibility. And it's a sin to neglect this responsibility. Now, when I say it's a solemn duty, I want you to notice how Paul enforces this commandment with two motivations. One of the sweet things about uh, the ways of God is the more serious the responsibility, the more he sweetens it. You ever notice that? He could simply have said, I urge you to pray. But no, he gives these motives. <laughs> and the two most powerful gospel motives there are. He says, I urge you by the Lord Jesus Christ and I urge you by the love of the Holy Spirit. Well, first he, he says, it's because of who Christ is and what he's done that I'm calling on you uh, to pray. Notice he, he gives us all three names and titles of our Savior as the mediator. He is, um, I'll start with the middle. He's Jesus. You'll call his name Jesus, Jehovah saves, because he's Emmanuel, God with us, who's come to save his people. He's the Christ. So he's the anointed prophet, priest, and king who has everything necessary, both while he was on earth and now, to do everything in our lives. And he's Lord. <laughs> He is, in fact, our Lord and our King. So Paul is saying, I'm urging you now, I want you to consider the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how is Christ as mediator a motivation for prayer? Why 
can God accept you in prayer? A larger catechism 180 says that we're to pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do that because he is the access that we have to the throne room of God. But what that means is let's get rid of all the covering. It means that Jesus Christ had to humble himself to the lowest degree as the God man. And then to obey the law of God perfectly to suffer every imaginable type of misery in this life. To die the atoning death of Christ uh, on the cross and to be dead and buried, and then to rise again on the third day and go to heaven. But you see, we could not pray if Christ had not done that. And what Paul is saying, I want you to think about what it's cost God to allow you to pray. Isn't that amazing? What it cost God to allow you to pray. And I encourage you, as I try to encourage myself, when I'm sluggish and I'm drawing back, I stop and think about my adoption. I I stop and think, I can only come to God in this manner because of what my Savior's done for me. And it becomes then a wonderful motivation, you see, to labor in prayer. let Let me give a warning here as well. Because of this close connectedness between uh, prayer and the work of the Savior, I want each of you to ask himself, herself tonight, what is the role of prayer in your life? Or do you pray at all? Do you pray merely at the table and give some kind of rote thanksgiving for the food? Or is prayer some part of your life as a Christian? Not that we, we all labor there and some are stronger than others. But let me just say that because prayer is so connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're basically a prayerless person, that means you're unconverted. And may the Spirit even take this warning to speak to you of your serious danger. You might sit in the church year after year and decade after decade. But if you're prayerless, you're not converted. You remember how God assured Ananias when he sent him to baptize Saul of Tarsus, it was going to be okay. He said, you go to this address and, and you're going to find him praying. You see, prayer is like the, the, the healthy cry of a newborn baby. Oh, we struggle with it. But it is the cry of one who has been born again by the Spirit of Christ. Well, that's the first motivation. If Christ is your beloved Savior, then Pray. And the second one, in a sense, is even more powerful by the love of the Spirit. You know, we often think about the love of God the Father for us, John 3.16. We think about the love of Christ for us, what he did. But we don't often think about the Spirit loving us. But see, the Spirit loves us as well. And his, his mission is part of that of the triune God. And he has come in love to equip the Savior for all that he did. He's come in love to regenerate us and call us to the Savior. He's come in love to indwell us. The Holy Spirit loves you. And that should be a motivation to prayer. And then maybe we have one of those uh, double meanings, double entendres here. And now he's pouring into our heart the love of God. As he comes to us in love, he's created in us love. Love for God, for whose glory we pray. But love for the brothers and sisters. Love for the world. And so you see these two beautiful motivations that are given to us. And why I call it a solemn work. It is a duty. 
but a duty sweetened with gospel motivations. Well, we come now to the really great part of the commandment, and we kind of complete our circle. You're frustrated. Uh, You can't do much to help with the cause of gospel here or around the world. Well, I want you to see here is what Paul promises. What he says in this is that God is allowing you and me to enter into the full ministry of his work through prayer. Let me... Let me unpack this. Prayer is an awesome privilege. Paul asked them to pray for two things. Verse 31, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So Paul has two aspects of his ministry. Both are quite dangerous, and from a human perspective, Doubtful of success. As I said, he's been warned uh, about this trip to Jerusalem. The saints have begged him not to go, but he, he was compelled to go because of this offering that was going to express uh, the unity of the church. But, but he wasn't blindly going to rush into uh, the danger. He's praying. He said, join in your prayers with me and for me. But you see that here he is asking the church to pray for his safety. And he was quite conscious of the need of the prayers of the church for his deliverance. Because all that had been prophesied was going to come to pass and it did. Now God answered that prayer, or those prayers, in, in his always inimical way. Um, Paul was delivered. He did get to Rome. Uh, two years later at taxpayers' expense. Uh, and that's God's way of doing things. But he did use their prayers. You understand that. Along with the prayers of others, along with Paul's prayers, to grant Paul the safety, the security that he needed. You see that? That they were, you know, miles away, hundreds of miles away from Paul as they're praying. But... They're laboring by their prayers right alongside of him in the Holy Spirit. Now, we have great dangers today. We're well aware of the dangers the church is around the world, and we should be praying for uh, the safety and security of our brothers and sisters. But it's, uh, particularly here at home, where at this point we are basically by God's providence, been kept free from persecution. I want you to think particularly about praying for your office bearers. Paul was an office bearer. He was fulfilling this function uh, as an apostle, a preacher, and a deacon. And your office bearers uh, are in great danger today in two ways. Now, they are in great danger because... uh, Gospel office bearers are not like the generals in World War I that were hundreds of miles behind the front line issuing orders. No, gospel office bearers are on the front line, which means we get the brunt of Satan's attacks. And those attacks, particularly today, will be doctrinal and moral. And we see men falling all around us. And uh, the church of Jesus Christ and her office bearers desperately needs your prayers, your pastor, your elders, your associate assistant pastors. Uh, All of us need your prayers 
that God will protect us from the fiery darts of the evil one. For he slings them hard right and left. But the second thing that Paul asks prayer for is success. You can remember that. He's praying for safety or security and success. And notice the particular success that he is asking for. That my service for Jerusalem, middle of verse 31, may be acceptable to the saints. Hmm. Now what's going on? He's got a truckload of money and he's bringing it to Jerusalem. Now, if somebody was bringing a truckload of money to, well, you don't need it here, but let's say they're going to bring it to Antioch. Uh, we wouldn't do an invoice and see whether that was uh, lottery money or what. <laughs> you know, great, bring it. Uh, but this was the problem. This was Gentile money. And they were actually those in Jerusalem who would turn down that gift and send it home. But what would that have done to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? It would have destroyed it. Pastor Groff prayed for unity. The unity of the church would have been completely shattered if that diaconal gift was rejected. And so Paul was well aware it was only the sovereign grace of God that would make that ministry successful. Now, our ministry is much more in doubt. We're not involved simply in bringing money to the mother church. No, we are involved in warfare with the dark kingdom. For the souls of men and women, boys and girls and families. For the advancement of the gospel. Now, I ask you, if Paul needed prayer for the success of a diaconal ministry. How much more do we in our churches need prayer today for gospel ministry? I alluded to this earlier. I'm, I'm often asked as I'm out and about, you know, what do I think are some of the reasons that Reformed churches just are not doing well today? And uh, there's lots of, of reasons, uh, you know, an imbalanced gospel message. The culture is very much set against us. But my number one reason is prayerlessness. When Jesus was at Nazareth, the writers tell us that he couldn't do many miracles because of unbelief. Now, unbelief is not kryptonite that just weakened Jesus. No, it's a spiritual law that God does not normally operate in a context of little faith. Now, I know only God gives faith. But in that context, God does not do great things. Now, in our churches, where we believe that only God saves sinners, and we're not pleading with God to save sinners as we gather as a church, why in the world should we expect Him to be in our midst and working? No. He does not work in places of little prayer. We need to take very seriously that if we want to enter into this glorious privilege of gospel reclamation and advance, then we must take very seriously this matter of praying for the kingdom to come in our private and family prayers, but all the more in our church prayers. Well, it brings us then to the, uh, the great blessing. We've seen the 
the, the serious work and the, and the solemn duty and this awful, awesome privilege. But uh, look now what God promises to do in our midst as we pray. Verse 32 and 33, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Two things. First is the church that is praying as it sees God working is filled with joy and happiness and spiritual refreshment. This is the theme that the apostle often uh, harped on. We think in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, uh, join in helping us, he's praying about himself, through your prayers so that many thanks, thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor of God. That as they answered prayers, there was going to be great rejoicing in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and again, in chapter 9, he, he turns to this the same theme that as God answers prayer, there's then going to be an abundance of thanksgiving and praise to God. And so Paul is saying here, what's going to happen? And this is why I'm saying this is particularly about the body of Christ. What's going to happen as you're praying together and you're seeing God answer your prayers? What joy? What refreshment? What spiritual pleasure takes place? I like to say the church that prays together stays together. You really cannot have been praying with uh, the brother or the sister together at prayer meeting and argue next week about the color of the carpet. It just doesn't fit, does it? We, there's great joy and blessing. What it's like to, to come, uh, and this happened to us this morning. Uh, to come uh, to a service and, and there is a person you've been praying for at the prayer meeting at the service. Man, even the children notice those things, you see. And there's such joy and, and refreshment in the body of Christ. And Paul was looking forward to that. The fellowship they would have, conscious of the fact that it was through their prayers, amongst others, that God brought in there. But then the next blessing is even more astonishing. And it's in verse 33. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now why in the world is Paul putting a little benediction right here before he's finished? Well, he's telling us that when we labor together in prayer, the God of peace is in our midst in a special way. In a special way. The God of peace comes in the midst of the worshiping assembly. He manifests himself in his presence, in our worship, our prayers, and in the preaching of his word and, and grabbing hold of us and, and dealing with us. And so under these four headings, I've sought to show you that God calls you to uh, the work, to labor in prayer in order that you might enter into uh, his ministry or work and enjoy great blessings. So I've developed that under the, the serious work, the solemn duty, the awesome privilege, and the, um, the great blessing that comes to us when we pray. And I hope that the Spirit of Christ has stirred up those of you who are seeking to labor in prayer and encourage you all the more as you do this, of how God will be with you and, and use you under that. I hope that you're challenged with the beauty and glory 
and the motivations to have a renewed commitment to prayer as individuals and prayer as a congregation. Is it not sad that most of us have a handful of people at prayer meeting? Some of our churches have called off prayer meeting because people didn't come. Oh, may the Spirit stir us up to gather as the early church did, to be devoted with one mind, to praying for, for Christ to come. I don't think the world has seen what our sovereign God would do if we joined together in our congregations and prayed in this way. And then a, a word of encouragement to some of you that perhaps you've been lax in prayer and right now you're all motivated and, and said, man, I am going to go and start praying. Well, I want you to do that. But I want you to do it a bit more moderately than what you feel like doing right now. Right now, I'm going to go pray 30 minutes tomorrow morning and I'll read my Bible. And you no, know, look, much of the Christian life is godly habits. Well, a bit like brushing your teeth. And so what I would encourage you to do is set aside 10 minutes a morning to read and meditate in the passage of Scripture and pray. Now, what will happen is as you do that, and as God interacts with you, you will lengthen that time and you'll grow into it. But you won't be discouraged because you started off too ambitiously. So may God equip each of us to pray, to lead our families in prayer, to be involved in the prayer meeting. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you and we bless your name for this encouragement, this instruction that you have given to us. Oh, may your spirit bless it to us, encourage us, Lord, and motivate us. Oh, Lord, may our churches begin to labor in prayer. That we might see something that's not been seen in decades in Spartanburg County or in upstate Greenville. Have mercy to us, Lord, on us and teach us to pray. For Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.